0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello,
1: this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, which you can listen to live Monday to Thursday, ten till one on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times radio app. But you're here for the best bits, and we've got a packed uh, episode for you today. Looking at what happens when personal friendships break up, and the impact on the breakup of the union, this extraordinary battle between Nicholas Sturgeon and Alex Savage. You might have been half paying attention to it, wondering what it's all about, why it matters. We've got a cracking uh, debate coming up on that later in the episode. Before that, it's Tuesday, so of course it must be Finkelvich, Daniel Finkelstein, and David Ivanovich. But before that, have you watched it yet? The big political blockbuster movie that everyone is talking about. Yes, it's the Rishi Sunak biopic, designed to promote the Chancellor head of the budget tomorrow. It comes in at a whopping six minutes although somehow managed to feel much longer. It's a video that's been uh, pushed out by the Treasury, which tries to make Rishi that look all cool. It's your classic tale of hoodies against baddies, the suave and sophisticated secret agent who likes his can of Coke, neither shaken nor stirred. It's a real treat, though, for Bond fans who've been waiting for their blockbuster fix. This is from Rishi with Love.
0: You tell us bit about the day you were asked to become Chancellor? No, gosh.
2: I remember when the Prime Minister offered me this job, he told me my face was a complete picture of shock.
3: Well, Rishi, it's great to see you here. This is Pizza
0: Pilgrims. Thanks, PM. This is a budget delivered in challenging times. We will give everyone in the country an eat out to help out discount. We do fuel a
1: lot
4: of our late-night works with, uh, with things like Nando's.
2: I like him. I'm getting, I I'm getting this grant, this self-employed grant, every three months.
5: Rushi Suna, I think, is just captivating to watch. I am
1: fantastic. Thanks, PM. And on the show today, we were doing uh, budget bond films. We had loads of suggestions from "Wish with Love," "Tax Another Day," "Quantitative Easing of Solace," "The Gold Standard Finger." Uh, do tweet me at matchall if you've got any better suggestions for that. Right on with the episode as normal. Like I said, coming up that investigation into what is exactly going on in Scotland. But first, our columnist panel. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. That's Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovic. Right, let's kick off with. Uh, political comebacks or retreads, depending on how polite you're being about it. Can I uh, just I prepared,
2: some... Matt, I prepared some James Bond ones and I, you didn't ask you... me. Go
1: on then, <laughs> I mean, let's well, do those I first. Thought... No, let's, let's, go... let's, let's let... okay, go on then. Your, your James Bond, your budget Bond movie <laughs> suggestions, please. Go on, Danny. Either Goldman Sachs finger or uh, <laughs> or, or you only eat out once, which... <laughs> those are very good. David... Are you going to join in, or are you still sulking?
3: <laughs> Actually, I'm only sulking to try and cover up for the fact that I simply couldn't think of one after your producer. I just sat there. I don't know much about James Bond, and it's not one of my kind of. Oeuvre. I kind of. I, I tend more towards sort of Eric Roma French comedies and stuff like that, you of know course, that. I'm sure you do. Yeah, I'm and sure so, you do. So I, was, I was really hoping you wouldn't ask, particularly after I started all sulky, but. It didn't sound, <laughs> me, did it? It didn't OK, sound. well,
1: you've got until 10 to 11 to try and come up with one. Right, let's talk about political retrends then uh, and whether or not political comebacks can ever be successful. Uh, we've, it, there's been a lot of it around today. Let's take a listen. So this was uh, one possible political comeback kid talking at the weekend.
0: Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time, OK? <laughs> for a third time.
1: Yeah, we should point out, of course, that he's suggesting that he won uh, twice, uh, which, of course, is technically not correct. Uh, and then yesterday, David Cameron, remember him? He was up in front of a committee of MPs and peers yesterday, uh, and he was asked if he ever thought about um, making a political comeback himself.
6: Donald Trump's uh, fancying a comeback uh, at some point. It does it ever cross your mind?
0: No. <laughs> Thank I'm, I'm, you. <laughs> thinking about Donald Trump making a comeback is enough. I think is enough to uh, keep us all um, spinning over. Uh, No, I'm uh, happy doing what I'm doing for Alzheimer's and dementia that that I've spent a lot of time on that.
1: So I think that what I loved that pause where David Cameron was clearly trying to think of the politest way of describing what uh, Donald Trump does to the to the nation or the the planet's uh, mental health. Um, Danny, do is it possible to make a successful political comeback?
2: Sort of. I mean, it is a bit difficult to make a souffle rise twice, uh, and, um, and and I'm not sure that it has been achieved very often. I did work for Cecil Parkinson when he came back as chairman of the Conservative Party under William Hague, and actually uh, I really enjoyed doing that, and he did bring some wisdom that he had acquired before and that was useful, but on the other hand, what the Conservative Party really needed to do in in uh, 1997 was to uh, to... To move on, and it was, you know, that that was it was a kind of backward-looking step in, in some ways. But you know, some somebody who who is very capable can bring, and you know, Ken Clark did the same thing when he came back into the into the shadow cabinet. Um, so it can be done, but it's not a very frequent occurrence for for obvious reasons.
1: William Hague's probably the most recent successful one, isn't he? Having been the leader, and then he went away, and then he came back as as foreign secretary that's true and he surprised all of his friends by going off to learn the piano um which
2: was a, you know which was a completely different dimension to him um and and actually you know I think it sort of did, did him some good to be out um you know he wrote a book learned how to play the piano did, did other things um and, it, and it, yeah he probably did come back um uh, stronger for it and of course you've got Ed Miliband doing you know trying to uh, carry out the same trick so, so it can work uh, a bit but those people haven't gone that far away you know that what hasn't really happened is people leaving parliament altogether Michael Portillo did that I mean rather forcibly and then came back <laughs> and sometimes when they come back you know and Michael found this I think I think he'd lost the appetite for it William to a certain extent as well actually even though he did last for then quite a long time and became foreign secretary you're not quite you it's never quite the same
1: yeah, I suppose. That, and I suppose that. And also, if you if you've been completely in the sort of pressure cooker of Westminster or, you know, the capital or whatever it is, and you step away from it, realize, oh, quite a lot of that doesn't matter, does it? Um, to throw <laughs> yourself back into it and start caring again with the same level that you need to in order to be a success um, it is probably quite difficult, David. Um, yeah, no, it is.
3: I mean, actually, there is quite a tradition of Tory leaders coming back as foreign secretary. Uh, Alec Douglas Hume did it I think um, yes. uh, and William Hague did it and it is a I think it is a kind of it is a successful semi retread for conservatives although nobody else does it or it maybe the labor doesn't do it because it simply isn't in power often enough to get former <laughs> leaders to be foreign secretaries and so on so by and large the kind of retread area for labor politicians was Europe was to be a Brussels commissioner and in fact that kind of worked with some tory uh, tories as well and i think this question of the first thing is whether you have the appetite to climb up that greasy pole all over again, having once slipped down to the bottom of it. I think that's one thing. And the second thing is whether or not people simply regard you as a kind of uh, tired voice from the past. And everybody regards you as a nuisance, as, they, as the younger people try to get on with sort of smashing each other about. But one of the uh, things that I've been really interested in the last six months is watching Tony Blair. Um, uh, the tony blair institute or whatever it's called is now kind of issuing a major policy statement almost every week i know because i kind of uh, I, i'm one of the recipients some of this stuff is very apropos. some of it seems to be extraordinary kind of well thought through um he is interviewed what danny about once a month now and matt you might be more aware about once a month now on something major lots of yeah. people think that whatever he says, that increasingly what he says seems to be both relevant and sensible. And the question is, is he a sort of, is that a way of retreading yourself through politics, is, which is you become kind of, kind of super policy wonk, edging yeah. the establishment towards particular positions? And oh. if so, is that likely to be enough for you?
1: I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Is it because of this, the, the political uh, uh, system of having to be in the House of Commons and the fact that, uh, former prime ministers in particular, but former party leaders generally, do have a habit of clearing off in recent years. You know, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron could all still, John Major even, could all still be in the House of Commons if they wanted to be, uh, and taking jobs in, in government. But because they've all left, it's, it makes it slightly difficult. Yeah. Is there a way back for Theresa May, do you think, Daryl? I, mean, I I, possibly, but, I, I,
2: you know, she's so out of sorts with the current... Um, <laughs> prime minister that i doubt that but you know the interesting thing i talked to david about his decision to resign from parliament and the problem is if you stay in the house of commons or even come into the house of lords you immediately get drawn into having to vote or not vote on everything that comes up and you then you then end up i mean actually there was a specific issue at the time which was grammar schools that had come up uh, under Theresa. and you, you you're constantly being faced with the decision do i oppose that Uh, And if if I'm going to support everything, what's the point of being here? And every time I oppose something, it becomes a massive deal. So it's quite difficult to stay when, you know, and it's interesting that Tony Blair immediately after becoming prime minister set up this completely pointless faith institute, um, which he went on (laughs) with for quite a long time before coming back to the obvious thing, which was because if you think about it, we don't really have a a broad-based think tank promoting liberal democratic a globalism, which is what he believes in and what he is now promoting. And so there was an obvious hole for that institute. Um, interestingly, Margaret Thatcher, I think that is exactly what they had intended to do with the Thatcher Institute, but then she got ill quite soon and didn't do it. Um, so he is now doing that. Uh, but it was a, he needed a bit of a space, I think, before he could return to doing that, because otherwise it would have just been a Tony Blair disagrees with Gordon Brown thing.
1: And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? In 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 Try to find a way through having a voice and using your voice and your experience without just being tarnished as being a uh, being a pest uh, for, you know, because you, you, know, you have more loyalty, hopefully, to your, your own part
3: in the opposition. Well, and, and this is what takes us to Donald Trump, because the question of loyalty to one's party and Donald Trump, because he is the kind of most famous p- p- potential uh, retread of the week is that he doesn't have any loyalty to the party at all, unless it's his. It's really quite remarkable. I mean, Inasmuch as in at all, it's not his party. He has no loyalty to it or anybody in it. Um, yeah. And that is a really, really kind of extraordinary position. I cannot think in the modern world, almost in any country, but maybe I'm just not not sufficiently educated, of a an attempt to hijack an entire political party like this for one's personal project entirely one's own personal project i
2: suppose theodore roosevelt is the closest example although ultimately he did leave the 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 party because he couldn't win the nomination from taft and then ended up uh, ditching them both in, in 1912 so so i think that's the closest comparison and interestingly enough though he's now regarded as a kind of great figure lots of people at the time thought he was a bit mad um, he's nothing by comparison with Donald Trump, but um, <laughs> but but that that was the kind of vibe on him. Just one last thing, Matt. I think that um, these people who do come back, they do have wisdom. I said I talked about Cecil Parkinson, but you know, if you talk to as I do sometimes to John Major or to William Hague or to David Cameron, um, you know, or to Theresa, they, they've all got an immense amount of experience and knowledge, and I'm always struck by just how deep that is. You know, these are people who, I don't know, had long conversations about the Falklands with the president of Mexico and, and, uh, and the president of Argentina, That they, they, they kind of know things uh, at a pretty deep yeah. level um, that others don't know because they haven't had the experience. So it is a shame to lose that experience. And if we can find a way of allowing those people to be in public life without all the kind of overheads that come with that, then we should.
1: And I I, I thought I was struck, actually, that it was quite unusual, David Cameron, you know, appearing for a a committee in Parliament. But actually, that's quite a good way of saying, come in, impart your knowledge It was on a whole range of issues, national security and foreign aid and all that sort of stuff, uh, which is possibly slightly more constructive than sort of endlessly popping up on um, breakfast telly and and that sort of thing. And William
2: Hague, I think, is now playing that role, you know, by giving his view, as he has today, about taxes. um, He's he's often uh, playing a pretty useful role, I think, in terms of sharing some of his experience.
1: And then, okay, let's let's move on because it was quite quite conscious. Of it was quite a lot we've got to try and get through, but that was uh, properly uh, interesting. Um, and uh, somebody is almost certainly about to text in and say uh, you should let Finkelfitch run longer because uh, that's what we get every week. Anyway, let's talk about Roy <laughs> Greenslade, uh, former Fleet Street editor, former editor of the Guardian, was a Med- Guardian media columnist as well. Uh, the revelation at the weekend where he has um, uh, admitted uh, uh, that the, he. Uh, the, the the murder of innocent civilians was justifiable. This is talking about uh, Northern Ireland, a sort of IRA supporter, uh, supporting IRA uh, terrorism. He has now resigned as a lecturer in journalism ethics uh, to spare the blushes, I think it's f- uh, fair to say, of the university, uh, the City University this is. Uh, was, he, was he right to resign, Danny? I'm quite glad he did because my brother's about to become president of City
2: University and I didn't want that landing on his <laughs> plate <laughs> um, yeah, That's, a yeah, good, that's I, as good I, an answer I, as any <laughs> um, I, The answer is yes um, I was pretty shocked by it really um, uh, particularly by um, the correspondence of, um, of, of Liam Clark who'd worked with him um, who felt that he put his life at risk. So there were two aspects to this first of all it's the fact that anybody supported the IRA and its armed struggle during that period. Um, And, you know, that is a very contentious thing to do and can be argued about in its own right. Um, But secondly, um, there was the fact that he was writing under an assumed name for the Irish Republican Newspaper, something that um, he didn't state that he was doing. Um, Now, I think it. I think you know, and I would say this. Obviously, I think within certain types of journalism, like comment journalism, it's it's reasonable to have your you have to really have your own opinions and express them. But I do think in when you're a news editor and a news journalist, particularly to hold views, you know, which are aligned with an extremist, violent. Uh, you know, criminal in fact, during lots of this period, organisation and not state it is pretty extraordinary. And then become a professor of journalism ethics, it's amazing.
1: And I have to say, having uh, once or twice been on the receiving end of uh, Roy Green's criticism for how other people were going about uh, doing their journalism, it it's just slightly stick in the this, isn't it? Uh, I,
3: the interesting thing about that, I think there are two things about this really that that, that, that take me. The first is that. In a sense, Roy Greenslade for a while was an interest, a classic kind of interest, which was that he had an opinion which, in a sense, he acted upon without stating clearly what it was. So I think it was during his editorship uh, but certainly during his time, the Daily Mirror had a troops out of Northern Ireland policy, which I always regarded essentially as saying, let's give it back to, let's, let's say, the provost of one. Uh, and incidentally, during that period, he was actually described as Roy of the provost by, um, by private eye. Uh, and by um, my old friend Francis Ween, who'd always pointed this out about uh, about Greenslade. But at the same time, to be writing under an assumed name for Anne Foblach, the uh, provost's paper, is outrageous. I mean, it's just outrageous. You should have, he should have been stating that that's what he was doing, so that everybody knew it and they could make a judgment accordingly. And the reason he didn't was because he knew what their reaction would be. And if you are not doing something because you know what people's reactions would be, That's not terrific. But the second thing that really riles me about this at the moment is that Boris Johnson immediately, that Greenslade did this, said what a terrible person he is, what an appalling character, what an absolutely appalling history. This is the same Boris Johnson whose government ennobled Claire Fox, Lady Fox, who is an equally unrepentant supporter effectively, of, Irish Repo- of violent Irish republicanism from the time, though number 10 suggested that somehow either she would resiled from it, which was completely wrong, she never did. And that apparently is no problem. And I, you look at this and you think, it really this stuff really doesn't matter to any of you, does it? It doesn't matter anymore to anybody, because you are, will use it or not use it, or excuse it or not excuse it, entirely based on what's convenient for you. And the people who died and the arguments that happened then they don't really count.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's it's extraordinary. I assume that maybe they'll get Roy Roy back on the on the journalism course as a you know when they discuss uh, journalism ethics in future. Uh, he can be a, a, a visitor. Um, just finally, we haven't got a lot of time, but I've just got on my script now. Rishi Sunak murderer question mark? Who
3: wants to do that in two minutes? <laughs> that was David. Well, who I do. That. <laughs> uh, I do very. I do very briefly. Um, it's absolutely clear that back in September. When the government was considering uh, whether or not there should be a circuit breaker, as we saw at the beginning of the approach of uh, a, a rise in infections level, the key person almost almost certainly in persuading Boris Johnson not to do it was Rishi sunak um, uh, for and it was Rishi Sunak who was largely responsible for that convened colloquialism colloquium uh, in which largely um, the great Barrington, uh, uh, lot of uh, anti-lockdown scientists were consulted significantly before the decision was taken not to go into uh, into that into that circuit breaker, uh, and while everybody's saying what a fabulous person he is and what incredible popularity he has. The thing I want to point out at this point, uh, really, is that when the inquiry comes into the way in which the pandemic has been handled, whatever it says about the origins of the pandemic and how slow we are, the thing it is really going to smash people up for is what happened in the autumn. And one of the people who's going to get smashed for that, I predict, will be Rishi Sunak. But it will obviously come far too late to stop his meteoric rise. We might be Prime Minister by that point.
1: Um, Danny, quick thought on that.
2: Well, I think that the government did pause too long um in the autumn but whether or not it was entirely due to rishi sunak i think we will find out i'm not sure that i think that account will turn out to be correct but we'll see i think he certainly did take the view that the economy needs to open up um and was of more of the view that a lot of the transmission was in schools but i don't think it's as uh unequivocal as david suggests <laughs>
1: That's Daniel Finkelstein and David, and one of which you can, of course, you can read them both in the Times. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a Times of Scripture. Go to the Times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, they're not friends anymore. It's Nicholas Sturgeon versus Alex salmon and we try to explain
0: what it all means. I'm Oliver Moody, the Berlin correspondent for The Times, here to tell you about a new podcast investigation. He signed his official letters with Heil Hitler. The man who helped to lay the legal basis for the Holocaust. If Globke were
1: responsible for the deportation of any Jews, he should have been tried.
0: The Spider in the Web. The Hans Globke story out this Thursday on Stories of Our Times. Listen on The Times radio app, ACAST, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley.
1: Now, politics is almost always personal. And the higher you go in politics, the fewer friends you have, which is what made the relationship between Alex Salmon, the sorcerer of the Scottish National Party, and his apprentice Nicola Sturgeon, so compelling. When he quit his first minister in Scotland, having fallen short of his dream of independence, she was his choice to replace him, and she took her party and their cause to new heights. But then the relationship turned sour, with the battle going all the way to the courts and to the heart of the question about whether the United Kingdom will follow their friendship in being broken up. I remember from the television debates uh, of uh,
6: 2010, the, the catchphrase was, I agree with Nick. Well, I agree with Nicola. She's a brilliant politician. And already, I think she's demonstrating... Her outstanding leadership qualities. Uh, she doesn't need advice from so me.
7: I've worked with Alec for 25 years. He's been a mentor to me. You know, so much of what I know about politics and how mm. to be a politician I've learned from him. The media are desperate to suggest that there are great splits between me and Alec Salmon. I mean, there aren't. Occasionally, Alec's not always as funny as he thinks he is, and perhaps this is an example of a joke that perhaps belongs more in the Benny Hill era than it does in the modern era.
6: I am innocent, and I will defend my position vigorously. But the only place, the only proper place, to answer criminal charges is in this court.
7: This will be extremely upsetting to members of the SNP up and down the country. It's a difficult situation, but what is important is that complaints are treated seriously.
6: I never thought it possible that at any point I'd be taking the Scottish Government to court. And therefore, while I'm glad about the victory which has been achieved today, I'm sad that it was necessary to take this action.
7: He has made claims, or he appears to be making claims or suggestions that there was some kind of conspiracy against him or concerted campaign against him. There's not a shred of evidence about that. So this is the opportunity for him to replace insinuation and assertion with evidence. I don't believe he can because I know what he is saying is not true, but the burden of proof is on him.
6: The Scottish civil servant hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. The Crown Office hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. Scotland hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed.
7: A conspiracy theory, a scorched earth policy uh, that threatens the reputation and the integrity of Scotland's independent uh, justice institutions just because you happen to dislike this government um, and to sacrifice all of that, if I may say so, presiding officer, um, on the altar of the ego of one man.
1: A extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary uh, path uh, of all that drama. But it all stems, of course, from the way that Nicola Sturgeon's Scottish government handled allegations uh, of uh, sexual harassment against Alex Salmond. He was cleared, but believes he was the victim of a conspiracy to humiliate and even jail him, orchestrated by his former friend and ally. Well, the public fight continues this week with Nicola Sturgeon giving evidence to the inquiry into the mess. We'll examine what it means to the SNP and the rest of us in a moment. But first, time Scottish Police Kieran Andrews is here to bring us up to speed and explain what we need to... Because lots of people might, particularly people who aren't in Scotland, not following every twist
8: and turn of all of this. Uh,
1: Kieran, could you just explain what we need to know right now?
8: Morning, Matt. I'll, I'll do my best. So this goes <laughs> back to... Actually, it goes all the way back to November 2017 um, as the Me Too movement... Was gaining momentum and uh, gaining, and and there were more and more allegations coming out about inappropriate behaviour by powerful men, and particularly at this point, powerful men in politics. The Scottish Government brought in a new complaints and harassment procedure that crucially included the ability to, for people to make retrospective complaints against former ministers. Two civil servants came forward. They raised concerns and then made complaints about Alex Salmon's behaviour. Um, as, as the process went on, um, Salmond pushed back against it at, at every stage and said that the process was was unfit for a purpose and was was unfair And how it examined his case. He eventually took the Scottish government to court and in January 2019, um, the court of session in Edinburgh... Um, decided that the complaint process was indeed unlawful, unfair and tainted by apparent bias I and mean, awarded Alex Salmond um, more than half a million pounds in legal costs. Separately, there was a, a criminal trial of of Alex Salmond where he faced 13 counts of um, sexual assault, including one of attempted rape. He was cleared. He was acquitted of all of those charges at the after the the high court trial. Yes, sorry, I'm not quite sure what happened. there. Yes, um, <laughs> effectively, Alexander is claiming that the um, that the the civil case against him um, was driven by the Scottish government, and and they took actions therefore to to pressure people into coming forward to the police in the in the criminal case. Senior figures in the Scottish Government, senior figures in the SNP were effectively part of a, a malicious campaign, he called it, to destroy his reputation. And if that ended up with him in prison as a result of the criminal charges, so be it. That has been denied vigorously by Nicola Sturgeon as a, as a conspiracy theory.
1: I suppose there's some people who, who remember them being so close around the 2014 independence referendum. Uh, we'll be wondering why? Why would they? Why would someone in the SNP want to destroy the guy who took the SNP into power in Scotland? It took them close to independence in twenty fourteen. Uh, what's the root of this? This sort of bitter feud between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon?
8: Well, it's fair to say that Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon's relationship cooled pretty dramatically after he. Um, resigned as first minister after the scottish independence referendum There was one key moment where um where salmon apparently told sturgeon that the snp couldn't function properly with hurrah's party leader and peter murrell who's the party's chief executive but also Nicola sturgeon's husband that the party couldn't work with the two of them uh, in the two most senior positions even if it was just from a you know from from a perspective of how it looks Nick Sturgeon ignored that advice Peter Murrow was one of the people that Alex Salmond has named as being part of um, uh, this concerted effort to um, as as he says to to destroy to destroy him and and then you saw various issues various um, flashpoints when you know when Salmond would freelance on policy Sturgeon um Sturgeon's campaign in 2017 um in the general election there where which ended up in with Salmond losing his seat um was criticised by Salmond. He wasn't actually part really of the 2016 Holyrood election campaign. And then when Alex Salmond had his uh, show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, that that annoyed Sturgeon, but nowhere near as much as him deciding to Take up his television program on RT, the Kremlin-backed uh, television station. So th- there's been a, 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 a fairly big cooling of relationship on on quite a long time over quite a long time. But it was ultimately these allegations that um, that severed the relationship.
1: Well, Kevin, listen. I know we need to let you go because you're going back to try and listen into the this inquiry and, and report on it uh, live for for the Times. So, Kevin, Andrews, Scottish political editor of the Times. Thanks so much for talking us through the background, exactly what's going on uh, in this this enormous feud between Nicola Sturgeon and uh, and Alex Salmond. Let's. Uh, examine now a bit about what impact this is having uh, politically and what impact it might have going forward. Let's speak to uh, James Mitchell, Professor of Public Policy at uh, Edinburgh University. Hi, James. Hi. Uh, We've also got Glasgow-based journalist Angela Haggerty as well. Hi, Angela.
5: Hello. Uh,
1: James, put into context for us the the sort of the scale of this political rupture in the SNP and how serious it might be.
0: Well I think the focus so far has been on a split between um, Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon but there are other elements to the divisions in the SNP that have got absolutely nothing to do with that feud. Now there's no doubt at all that feud is causing enormous difficulties for the SNP and it's obviously very heated and it's very emotional but there are other issues as well and I would argue that these other issues are likely to have greater impact long term big big divisions on the strategy to be employed to try and win an independence referendum there's there are divisions on the kind of independence, the currency that might be used in independent Scotland and then there's that, there are some everyday public policy issues transgender uh, issues that are dividing the party so the SNP, uh, partly by virtue of being in office, is, is deeply divided on some issues but most particularly, and anyone who knows anything about the history of the SNP will be well aware that the biggest divides have always been over strategy and tactics. How do you win independence and that's where i think even apart from the, the uh, salmon sturgeon feud the snp really has uh, some challenges ahead
1: and uh let's ping angela in there and angela this division over uh the way forward to try and secure independence does divide on the sort of sturgeon salmon lines does it
5: the two yeah, camps um,
1: actually, actually do sort of align
5: yeah, um, you know, James mentioned uh, policies like, um, you know, transgender rights uh, also there. And again, we, we actually see the same sort of a split um, uh, between those who would align themselves more with, you know, what's considered the more progressive sturgeon side and then those who I think are perceived to be a bit more conservative on the, the salmon side. So we, even though that there are a number of issues, we are still generally seeing the two same types of camps here um, and the ironic thing of course is that support for independence has actually been rising so you know if the if the big uh, kind of split is often about strategy and tactics for independence and all these things it is sort of strange that we're seeing this really coming to a head at a point when arguably the, the SNP and the independence movement has never been in a better position, the polls are all going in the right direction the SNP uh, is still on course to win a majority in the upcoming elections. So it's almost, you know, we we talk about the uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory idea and it it does have that feel about it, you know, that the SNP is kind of imploding just at that kind of final final hurdle. Um, So it's it's fascinating, you know, for for political geeks like me, it's fascinating to watch (laughs) it. Um, The big question, of course, is how this actually comes across to the public and that quite often is very very different from what people like me would, you know, we think the public should care about certain things, you know, democracy, institutions and the functioning of Parliament, but the the public are are often not really as invested in the technical aspects of that, they just want the bigger picture Uh, and that's where the real question lies, what is it that people care about most at the moment? And I would still argue that I think the pandemic is the priority for most people Um, but where the damage for the SNP might come from is just that there is a sense of turmoil within the party and that does bleed through to the public they will pick up on that um, and they might be less confident in that party being able to lead them to independence if that's the case.
1: Yeah it's really interesting that you, you would think yeah if, if if yes to independence was on sort of 25% that it was all going horribly wrong you'd think. Yes, there'd be criticism of uh, Nicola Sturgeon, what Nicola Sturgeon was doing, but the opposite is true. And yet they seem to be tearing themselves apart. James, how much of this do you think lots of people have made this point that because the, the SNP have been so dominant in recent years in Scotland... The opposition, whether it's the Conservatives or the Labour Party or the Lib Dems or or, or whatever, have just not really laid a glove on them in any way. If if you do have, and it's an exaggeration to call it a one-party state, but an overwhelmingly dominant party with no real challenge from outside, did they end up fighting amongst themselves?
0: Well, I don't think there's any doubt that the SNP has been very fortunate in the opposition it's faced. I mean, the opposition parties have been pretty feeble that may be about to change because of course at the weekend the Labour Party in Scotland elected a new leader and Anna Sarwar may well uh, provide uh, Nicola Sturgeon with with real challenges I suspect he will and he's certainly one of the few politicians that I've witnessed over the years who can really challenge Nicola Sturgeon if you go back to the 2014 referendum and the many many debates that she participated in the one that the ones that stood out where she was under most pressure were undoubtedly those with Anna Sarwar so I think we may see, we may be beginning to see something quite different but the SNP undoubtedly has had a pretty easy ride up until, now I have to say I I don't quite agree with Angela, I think the polls are beginning to, or ought to begin to worry the SNP in sports of independence because there's signs that that at the very least they're stalling, if not going backwards, there's certainly still a majority for independence according to the polls but it's not a healthy majority, it's not one that would guarantee or come close to guarantee a majority. And of course, it's certainly the case that the polls are showing that the SNP might win an overall majority, which in itself is is quite uh, spectacular. Remember, there's only ever been one election, the 2011 election, when the SNP won an overall majority. But it's not looking certain by any means. And and, and I I very much agree with Angela that the public may not fully understand the ins and outs of of what's been going on, but that sense of turmoil could make a difference and it wouldn't take much uh, much of a change in the polls to rob the SNP of that overall majority which they desperately need if there is to be any prospect of a referendum.
1: Just finally then Angela Uh, it's not guaranteed and we'll have to wait and see how this plays out in the polls because also there's there's sometimes a lag between like you said we're, we're watching every twist and turn and sometimes the the electorate has to absorb a bit more of it. But were the polls to turn, were Nicola Sturgeon to not win the majority expected in in May, can she survive that? And if if she is forced out as first minister, can uh, uh, who else is there? You know the the <laughs> Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon dominated for so long. Uh, who else is there in the SNP?
5: Well, this is one of the problems. Is I think that anyone who's asking the question of who would come next after Nicola Sturgeon, it's that's a difficult one to answer because it's 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 hard to think of someone who's who can be as charismatic as either Alex Salmond or Nicola Sturgeon out of the the current crop. Um, so it's it, it's quite difficult. Um, one thing I would say though, you know, in addition to what James has pointed out there, is that even if the SNP fell short of a majority, there's still a good chance that the Scottish Greens would make up the pro-independence majority in the Parliament, so we'd be in the similar position as we are right now. Uh, no outright majority for the SNP, but there is a pro-independence majority, and that's quite important in the sense that it's not just about the SNP; it's about other parties as well. Um, and so, I, I think you know, yes, the, the polls are not you know overwhelmingly in favour of Scottish independence, but they are the most in favour of Scottish independence that we've ever seen. And I think um, also if you think back to the 2015 uh, general election when the SNP kind of swept the board, you know, and it was a shock election because it it took away all those Labour strongholds that had been so traditional in Scotland. Um, You know, the, the, the the influx of members to the SNP was astronomical. You know, tens of thousands of people were flocking uh, to the SNP and they were coming from very different uh, backgrounds. So some Labour, maybe some more Conservative, some in the middle. There's no way really that the SNP could provide a political home for all of those people in the long term. You know, as long as it's a single issue party, fine. But it can't just be a single issue party when it's also in government in Scotland. So I think it's inevitable that we were we're going to start to see rifts but I think the SNP might have been banking on the idea that they could achieve independence first and then people might <laughs> sort of silo off <laughs> yeah yeah people might silo off into their, their more kind of traditional political homes after that in an independent Scotland the big question now is will that happen is the SNP going to get there
1: can they get the wheels on uh, just to get over the line really really fascinating Angela Haggerty uh, thanks so much uh, Angela's a, a journalist based in Glasgow a close watch of the SNP we also heard from Professor James Mitchell from uh, Edinburgh University. Up next, we're going to speak to Luke Graham. You may remember he was uh, the, not the last one to resign, but the one before, uh, who quit as the uh, head of the U- union unit, Boris Johnson's union unit inside Downing Street. We'll hear uh, what the union uh, side of the argument makes of what's been going on. We'll speak to him next on Times Radio.
0: Max Chorley, mid-morning on Times Radio.
1: So we've just been discussing uh, the question of the battle between Nicholas Sturgeon and uh, Alex Salmond. Alex Salmond gave was it about six hours of explosive evidence to the inquiry into the uh, Scottish Government's handling of the complaints against him. Uh, they, uh, that was on Friday. Nicola Sturgeon due to give evidence... Uh, tomorrow uh, but that no sign of uh, this row abating and still you know we'll have to wait and see about how this might impact the polls both for the SNP's prospects in the uh, 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 Holyrood elections in May this year but also um, how the it might impact support for independence and there's a flip side to all this of course uh, the, uh Nicholas nicolas has been doing so well at building the case for independence and number 10 has been left slightly scratching its head about what to do just over a week or so ago oliver lewis uh the head of the union unit in downing street quit he'd only been in the job two weeks uh because he replaced luke graham who had headed up the union unit in number 10 until last month and luke graham joins me now hi luke hi good morning Uh, What do you make of the fact that uh, the best uh, campaign uh, against uh, independence in Scotland seems to be now being waged by Alex Salmond rather than your old boss, Boris Johnson?
4: Yeah, um, I think some of the tensions uh, within the SNP have been bubbling around for a while. You know, just mentioned by the previous speakers, but some of these issues about trans rights, and women's rights, obviously the removal of Joanna Cherry from her position, uh, and obviously the the kind of more long term uh, tension between those wanting to go the kind of legal route to a... uh, uh, a legal referendum and those with the supporters of kind of plan B or, 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 or wildcat kind of referendums or protests. So I think they've essentially been bubbling around for a long time. And the SNP have enjoyed a pretty dominant position in Scottish politics, in the Scottish media as well. Um, uh, and there's definitely a feeling the kind of Teflon coating that they've had for, and enjoyed for so many years
1: perhaps is just starting to wear down a bit. Uh, what about your old boss, Boris Johnson? How much of a threat does he pose to the future of the union?
4: I don't think the prime minister is a, a threat to the union. And uh, as I said before, you know, polls move all the time. Nicola Sturgeon was polling negatively back in uh, kind of autumn 2019. Now, obviously, is, is polling very positively. I think the you know the PM with some of the actions, you're seeing some of the success of the vaccine program. Um, you heard you know last week about the the Leveling Up Fund, which would be kind of UK wide and 4.8 billion pounds. You know, these are really positive things that the government's doing, and obviously the the PM's kind of spearheading that.
1: If if Number Ten is so confident that the the in making the case for the union, uh, why not let the SNP have another referendum? They you know if they get the majority, that's democracy, isn't it? They they put it in their manifesto. Why not let them have a referendum and you can beat them.
4: Well, I mean, the SNP, if you remember, they had the success in, in 2015. But, you know, I was a candidate in that uh, election. And I was there on the, uh, you know, at, at all the hustings with the SNP candidate. And we were told clearly then their priority wasn't uh, separation. It was actually standing up for Scotland in Westminster and trying to make the existing system. And they were rewarded uh you know with that with with a, a significant number of mps however in 2017 you know when i was elected that was just on the back of the smp saying actually no, the number one priority was separation again um and i think voters felt betrayed by the fact that they were told that it was about standing up scotland and actually they kind of felt they'd been hoodwinked into voting for them and then they said actually no it's all about separation um i think we're in a you know. The, The the majority of people in Scotland, I mean, the polls, we've seen that slight slip, you know, from late January, February, independence starting to come down. We've seen it in the recent weeks, Nicola Sturgeon's popularity just starting to slide slightly. Nothing can be t- taken for granted because um, obviously we've had a stream of uh, polls the other way. We're just starting to see a, a little bit of a dent coming into the SNP. And also when you look at actually the priorities of people in Scotland, independence usually uh, or separation can have polls at sixth or seventh in pretty much every one of those polls behind things like jobs, behind the economy, behind the health service. And so those are the priorities for people in Scotland not actually breaking up the country.
1: Do you think support for independence would be higher or lower if Boris Johnson wasn't Prime Minister?
4: Well, as I said, I think that the polls on the, the Prime Minister... You yeah, know, will go either way. I think the the fact is that independence or support <laughs> that for independence. Like you don't have fluctuate. a
1: huge amount of faith in your old boss. And the the truth is, he's massively unpopular in Scotland, isn't he? Which makes which made your job when you were in the Union Unit whoever it is who who uh, has to pick that up uh, for the next couple of weeks. Um, that makes your job well, almost to be, impossible. To be, to, be fair, UK, to
4: be fair, the UK the UK government the UK government has been polling pretty negatively for years and years. That isn't down to this prime minister. That's down to successive administrations of all colours going through kind of a devolve and, and forget culture. I think we have seen, to be fair to this Prime Minister, there's a real focus on the union, putting in resources, changing policies, uh, and actually, you know, for the first time in a very long time, trying to change the culture of, of devolve and forget within Whitehall. So, you yeah, a lot of policy and changes are coming from the fact that the Prime Minister is changing this. But as I've said before, you know, these things, the... the The view of the UK government, the view on separation and and the union won't change overnight. It will happen over months, if not a couple of years, um, because the SNP have had had pretty much a decade of a free run, uh, chiseling away at the union, chiseling away at British identity and trying to put wedges between people in different parts of the UK. So the the fight back's only come a lot more recently. So the results are going to take a little bit more time
1: to come through. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bit of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB online via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.